Hello, folks. Good morning. Welcome to the fellowship. It's good to be here. Um, so this morning we are going to be in Haggai, the book of Haggai. Um, it's just two chapters, 38 verses. Um, but in these 38 verses, he preaches four sermons. I bet you wish my sermons were that short. <laughs> but unfortunately, they're not. But we are going to cover four sermons in this one, so... That should be, for, you know, that should count for something. So Haggai's name means festival. That's pretty exciting. We all like a good festival. Um, so there's that. Um, the book was written in 520 BC. It seems like the more current we get, the more accurate we get on the dating of books and things. Uh, most scholars think that Haggai was over 70 years old at the time of writing this. Um, that's based on Haggai 2.3. Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, which says, Who among you survivors saw the former splendor of this temple? How does it look to you now? Isn't it nothing by comparison? So we'll expound on that further later. But this implies that Haggai himself saw the temple um, for himself, which, um, you know, the temple was destroyed when? Y'all remember from a few weeks ago, 586 BC. So um, this is Babylon. So we talked about Assyria a lot. We talked about Babylon overtook Assyria, and then uh, Babylon. Their mo was they would come in and uh, take over a land, and then they would export you. So they took the people of Judah and brought them to Babylon, and. So everybody had to leave the land of Judah. Uh, so uh, this is also this idea of Haggai being over 70 years old. It's also based on Jeremiah's prophecy about the Babylonian exile, which uh, Jeremiah said that um, those that were exiled, they would go and settle in that land, meaning Babylon. Build, they were to build houses, plant vineyards, basically live in that land, Go ahead and settle in because you're going to be there for 70 years. But after 70 years, you're going to return. And so um, there's a couple different ways we count the 70 years. Um, one way is to say from like 605 BC when Babylon first came into Judah um, until Babylon, the I guess the people of Judah were able to return, which was 536 BC. But that's only 69 years Uh the second way that people calculate the 70 years is to say uh, from 586 B.C. when the temple was destroyed until finally in 516 B.C. when the temple was completed, the rebuilding of the temple was completed. Um, that's, a, that's a true 70 years. Um, so the former, we say the first group was allowed to return in five, or 536 B.C., um, but uh, anyway, so maybe we say with that many people that were able to return, they weren't all quite there till 535 BC. I don't know. So that's our 70 years. Who, who knows? Um, I tend to lean toward that latter view of the temple destroyed till the temple being rebuilt because that's the point of being in that land. And everything else is it's, it's God's land, but the reason they were there is to worship God, and they did the worshiping of God in the temple. And that's the whole point of it all. And so that's why I lean toward that latter view, in case you're wondering what my thoughts on it were. Um, so anyway, that's how we conclude that Haggai was over 70 years old. So he's the, 
he's the elder in this place. It says that he's the prophet. Like he's just known as, yep, that's the prophet over there. That's that's Haggai. So really, if he if he's if he saw the temple before it was destroyed and it's been 70 years, he's probably at least pushing 80, if not older, because, you know, he had to have seen it and really understood. It had to be real in his memory, this former glory of Solomon's temple. Um, so anyway, we categorize Haggai as a post-exilic uh, prophecy, meaning it takes place after the Babylonian captivity, as we talked about. He's a contemporary with Zechariah. Um, which is the next next book in the Minor Prophets. Not the next book we're going to study. Uh, this will be the, the last sermon through the Minor Prophets that we're going to do for now. We might pick it up in a year or two and, and go through some of those longer of the Minor Prophets that we haven't discussed, but for now. So Haggai deals with this remnant of those that had returned to Jerusalem from the exile, after the exile, and his message is for them to rebuild the temple. Uh, so what had happened was, um, 536 BC, it says that the Lord stirred the heart of Cyrus. Cyrus is the king of Persia. It says the Lord stirred his heart and he allowed people to return to, to Judah. So once they returned, they began rebuilding the altar and then they started working on the foundation. So they rebuilt the altar, started making sacrifices there, started working on the foundation. Um, the pe people living nearby um, in the land, mostly the Samaritans, because, um, like I said, King Cyrus is the king of Persia. So Babylon fell, Persia took over. They're the next ruling power. And so we've, we've talked about Assyria, Babylon, now we're on to Persia. And, and this is King Cyrus. Persia's thing was they would let um, foreigners come into Samaria and sort of dwell in that land. So you had these foreigners that had come in. And they're there, and these foreigners living nearby in Samaria, they're these Samaritans, they began to frustrate the attempts to rebuild as they're trying to rebuild the, the altar and the foundation and everything. Let's just read Ezra uh, 4, 1 through 5. It talks about it. It says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin learned that the former exiles were building a temple for the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the leaders and said to them, Let us help you build... For, you, for like you, we seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him from the time of King Ashadaron of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the leaders of Israel said to them, You have no right to help us build the temple of our God. We will build it by ourselves for the Lord God of Israel, just as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Verse 4. Then the local people began to discourage the people of Judah, and to dishearten them from building. They were hiring advisors to oppose them so as to frustrate their plans throughout the time of King Cyrus of Persia until the reign of King Darius of Persia. So they were frustrating their, their plans to build. They were not being part of it. At first glance, we, you know, first glance when I read this, and you might be this way too, you know, we read this and we think, well, why didn't they accept this help to rebuild from these people? They're offering it, you know, these outsiders. Um, but it's actually a pretty wise move on the part of God's people. The Assyrians, you know, like I said, they would resettle people into Samaria from other places uh, for a deep dive on this. If you want to look into it, you can look at 2 Kings 17 if you really want to go deep on that. Um, we, we're not going to do that for time this morning. But, um, but you know, there's, there's lines involved in that, in those people returning back. There's a returning priest to come and 
help these foreigners with this line, that, like a former Jewish priest they bring back to help with these lines, this issue of lines. It's, it's pretty crazy. I would encourage you to go read 2 Kings 17. Um, anyway, these people, are, they are offering sacrifices to God, but they're also worshiping other gods as well. So wise move number one is not helping, not accepting this help because these people are doing the exact same thing that made the people of Judah be exiled to Babylon anyway. God removed his protection from them so Babylon could come in and judge them. And we talked about that in, I think last week in Zephaniah. So that's pretty, you know, that's pretty intense. Um, they're, they're worshiping these other peoples. The other move is, it's pretty clear right there in verse 1 of Ezra chapter 4. It says, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, so the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, we call that area Judah, they're enemies. It's not like they're friendlies or anything. They're flat out enemies. It says they're enemies. So that's the other big reason they didn't accept these people's help. It was right for them to be a little bit skeptical, skeptical of these people who are offering help. Um, but because they refused their help, maybe because they refused the help, maybe their whole point was we're going to offer help and then we're going to frustrate their plans to rebuild. We don't know. Uh, but because we do know for sure that because they refused their help, these people started frustrating them. They started opposing the rebuilding efforts. And over time, because they were having this opposition and these people were trying to frustrate it, it was very discouraging for the people of Judah. They just kind of stopped it all together. Um, so this story, um, if you remember Nehemiah, this story in Haggai has very has a lot of similarities with, with Nehemiah as well. You know, Nehemiah is the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the, a former, a later king in Persia. Um, and he sent Nehemiah back to help rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. So Haggai helps to rebuild the temple. Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the walls around the city because it's vulnerable. And Nehemiah recognizes that. So he asks Artaxerxes and he goes. Uh, but Nehemiah takes place about 75 years after Haggai. So, um, but there are some similar, similarities there. While Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls, the people are getting discouraged. They're having to build with one hand and hold a sword in the other hand, if you remember all that story. Um, so final kind of background, just to give us a little bit more framework. Um, the, the final, the, how had the book of Haggai is broken down, and I put it up on the thing so we see here. Um, the first sermon, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, um, his message is rebuild the temple. That's his whole message for the ser first sermon. And then the second thing that happens, verses one, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, the leaders um, and the people respond to that sermon of rebuild the temple. Second sermon, chapter 2, 1 through 9, he says the, temp the size of the temple is not the issue. That's not the issue here, and we'll talk about what the issue is. And then the third sermon, chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, says God's blessings will flow if the people obey and rebuild the temple. And then the fourth sermon, the last one there, chapter 2, 20 through 23, is just the universal reign of the Messiah is foreshadowed in Zerubbabel. So that's the breakdown of the sermon. That's sort of the outline, if you will. So let's pray. We'll get in the text here. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for... Um, this day, I thank you for these people. I thank you for your word. I pray that uh, you will use use me to open up this text this morning. Pray that we will see you in a way maybe we didn't uh, see you before. 
um, or we'll be reminded of a characteristic or attribute of you um, that maybe we had forgotten or need to be reminded of, Lord. And I pray ultimately, Lord, we will um, we will follow after the message of what Haggai is telling these people and that message, what that message is for us today. I pray that we will go and and rebuild the temples in our area that we need to do. Um, basically, we will go and do the work that you need for us to go and do. So I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Haggai 1, chapter 1, verse 1, says, On the first day of the sixth month of King Darius, King Darius's second year, so Cyrus, King Cyrus, no longer in charge. There's been some other kings. Now we're on to King Darius. And on the first day of the sixth month of, so this is not June 1st, by the way, their calendar is different from our calendar and the calendar we date this by is different from our calendar today. We're, we're on Pope Greg's calendar, and they're using the, uh, whatever it is, the, I forget the name of the calendar. But basically, it's August 29th, 520 B.C. That's the first day of the sixth month for, if you translate it into today's time. Uh, August 29th, 520 B.C. The Lord's message came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak. So these are the players. We have Haggai. He's the prophet. Um, and we talked about how he is just the prophet. He's that prophet. Everybody knows him. He's sort of the elder statesman, and he's this prophet in the area. Everybody just kind of knows about him. And then you have Zerubbabel, the governor. He led the people back from Jerusalem. He was the guy when the, when the Lord stirred Cyrus's heart, King Cyrus's heart, he sent Zerubbabel, who was sort of the, the leader in charge there, sent them back. So he's the he's the governor of Judah, and he is the leader here. Um, I heard one preacher say that when you hear the name Zerubbabel, you can think troubable, and you can think rubbable, because where he is, there's he returns to Jerusalem, there's a lot of rubble, and then you know we know from these outsiders that there's a lot of trouble that happens. So, um, but that's Zerubbabel, and then. Um, Ezra tells us that when they returned, there's 42,360 of them. It's a very, very distinct number there. Um, that's not to include all their male and female servants and their goats and all these other things. But um, there's 42,360 of them that are there. And then uh, Zerubbabel's dad is Shealtiel. Shealtiel's dad is Jeconiah. Je Jeconiah, Jeconiah, however you want to say it. And Jeconiah's dad was Josiah. We remember Josiah. He's the we should be familiar with him. He was the good king that tried to bring the people back. His efforts weren't enough and then Babylon was able to come in the end. So he's in that lineage. That's Zerubbabel. And then there's uh, Joshua. He's the high priest. Um, it's obviously not that Joshua, right? It's not the Joshua that led the people into the promised land. Um, Ezra, as we read, he calls him Jeshua, J-E-S-H-U-A. Um, it's the same Hebrew name as Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. So this Joshua, who's the high priest here, his name means Yahweh saves. And so here's Haggai's first sermon, starting in verse 2. It says, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has said. These people have, have said, The time for rebuilding the Lord's temple has not yet come. The Lord's message came through the prophet Haggai as follows. 
Is it right for you to live in richly paneled houses while the temp- while my temple is in ruins? Here then, this is this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has said. Think carefully about what you're doing. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but are never filled. You drink, but are still still thirsty. You put on clothes, but are not warm. Those who earn wages end up with holes in their money bags. Moreover, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has said. Pay close attention to the to these things also. Go up to the hill country and bring back timber and build the temple. Then I will be pleased and honored, says the Lord. You expected a large harvest, but instead there was little. And when you would when you would bring it home, it would blow right I would blow it right away. Why? asked the Lord of Heaven's armies. Because my temple remains in ruins, thanks to each of you favoring his own house. This is why the sky has held back its dew and the earth its produce. Moreover, I have called for a drought that will affect the fields, the hill country, the grain, new wine, fresh olive oil, and everything that grows from the ground. It will also harm people, animals, and everything they produce. So this is a tough sermon. It's a sermon of rebuke, um, but... There's a lot to unpack here. First of all, the Lord of Heaven's army, the Lord of hosts. Uh, we talked about that phrase when we were in the book of Joel, if you remember. Um, basically, it is this. It literally means the Lord of Heaven's armies. It's this powerful God that's leading the armies of heaven. And this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies is saying. And he doesn't say, my people have said, in verse 2, he says, these people have said. So he's not even claiming this, them as his people. And the reason is because of um, verse 3. First of all, let's finish out verse 2, though. He says, These people have said the time for rebuilding the Lord's temple has not yet come. So the reason for saying that, you know, they've been discouraged. This is 520 B.C. So from 536 to 520, they've been opposed. They've had opposition and everything else. And their plans have been frustrated. And so they just sort of gave up on rebuilding the temple. Just gave up on it. So they're they're saying the time the time has not yet come that's their excuse their their big um reason for doing this and excuses are what do they say it's like armpits everybody has them and they all usually stink or whatever so this is their excuse and it stinks it's a poor excuse so the time for rebuilding the lord's temple has not yet come that's their reason not good reason um so the reason (laughs) the reason god is calling them these people and not my people is because of verse three says Lord's message came or I guess it's technically verse four but it's following says is it right for you to live in richly paneled houses while my temple is in ruins Uh, so they were focusing on their own houses they were they stopped rebuilding the temple and they're focusing on building their own houses back Um, you know we when we think of paneled houses now we think of the it's it's generally pretty cheap and it's the little paneling that you know, it's like comes in sheets of, it's it's technically fake paneling, but it's meant to look like paneling. Um, I think our house has that right now, and I'm not too excited about it, but that's what it is. But these paneling houses back then were very, I mean, you had to be rich to afford it. Um, especially in Jerusalem, where there's not a lot of wood, they had to go to get the wood. He even tells them later, go get the wood, bring it back, help rebuild this temple. And so... Um, if you're a fan of Chip and Joanna Gaines, they have a show. Um, I think it's on HBO Max, but there's a castle in Waco, and they have they're renovating this castle, 
that's in Waco. It's not a huge castle, but there's these very nice, beautifully decorated walls that are um, that are these wooden panels that they've taken off of the exterior stone and they they're putting it back and, and it's very it's very beautiful and that's the picture I get when I think about these richly paneled houses. Um, so anyway, it's very eloquent, very nice, and you had to be rich to afford it. And so it says, is it right for you to live in richly paneled houses while my temple is in ruins? Here then, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has said. Think carefully about what you're doing. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but are never filled. You drink, but are still thirsty. Um, so uh, he, he calls them out. He rebukes them. But even with such a, you know, a hard rebuke, we get verse 4. Uh, well, hard rebuke, we have verse 4. Is it right for you to live in rich panel houses while my temple's in ruins? Um, there's still a love to it. He's, he's explaining why they're not satisfied. They're, they're living in this land. They're not satisfied. He's, why they're not satisfied, why they are frustrated. Verse 6, he says, you planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but are never filled. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but are not warm. Those who earn wages end up with holes in their money bags. There's truth. The truth here is that disobedience always leads to dissatisfaction. They're being disobedient, and that's leading to their dissatisfaction. They're doing all these things, but it's it's like they're just spinning their wheels. They're never getting ahead. They're never doing anything else. There's a lot of noble, noble pursuits that we can put our hands to, but if we're not, if God's not in it, if we're not following after God's leading in that, then um, those things are always going to lead, lead to disappointment for us. They're all going to lead, always going to lead to dissatisfaction. Ultimately, um, if we continue to pursue things that God is not in, they're going to lead to our, to our demise. Um, I remember years ago, I read um, the Purpose Driven Church. You're probably familiar with Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren. I know there's a lot of controversy about Rick Warren these days, but um, his book. He wrote years before that was Purpose Driven Church. And um, in that book, he talked about when they were first starting Saddleback and what they wanted to do. And the the thing that they said was, we don't want to do something and pray that the Lord will bless it. We want to find what is it that the Lord is blessing and be part of that. And I think that's a great model for you know, that is a church that is on purpose. Um, that's a church that is following after the, the purpose of what they're supposed to be doing. And so... Um, for us in, as individually in our own lives, that's what we should do. We should find out what is the Lord blessing and go be part of that. Where is the Lord leading and then go do that. Not just do stuff hoping that the Lord's going to come and bless it. Um, I love verse 5 too. I didn't mean to skip over it, but um, he says, he says, think carefully about what you are doing. Um, some, some versions say consider your ways. It literally, literally translates um, put your hearts on your roads. He's saying... Check your heart, basically. Check your heart. Consider what you're doing. Think carefully about what you're doing. And then first, verses 7 through 11, it gives more consequences for failure to rebuild the temple. The Lord tells them to go get wood. Um, then the Lord will be pleased and honored. Um, there's actually three imperatives there. It says, go, go up, get wood, build. So these are these three things he tells them to do. Um, and so verses 9 through 11 shows that prosperity never comes at the hands of men. Um, and here, I don't think that 
This is not a prosperity gospel that Haggai is teaching here. This is not this is not his point. But he's trying to show them you're going to keep doing these things and you're always going to be dissatisfied because you're being disobedient to the Lord. Um, there's also a very good encouragement like you have to be you have to work toward this. You, the Lord requires your work in this. Um, and that I think that translates that's a good message that translates to us today too. The Lord requires our work. He requires us to do things on his behalf. Um, here for them it's building the temple, but he still requires our work. And I think some of us get this picture like, you know, work is a byproduct of the fall of mankind, right? But it's not. <laughs> the the toil and the the hardship of having to really toil the ground to make stuff come up from it, and I think sticker burrs and weeds and mosquitoes, those kinds of things are a result of the fall. Especially mosquitoes, I hate those. Um, but um, I think you know, work is not a result of the fall. We were always required to work. The Lord created everything and gave us dominion over everything. So we're to work at having dominion over these things in all of in all of creation. And so the Lord requires our work, and that's something that we should, uh, you know, think about carefully. We should check our heart, and we should um, we should know that you know prosperity never comes at the hands of men. And then. 12 and following, we get the people's response. Um, verse 12, it says, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, along with the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the Lord their God. They responded favorably to the message of the prophet Haggai, who spoke just as the Lord their God had instructed him. And the people began to respect the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke, to the, spoke the Lord's announcement to the people. I'm with you, decrees the Lord. So I know in the in the introduction I said that the um, the Haggai's message for the people was when they the people that have returned I said his message was rebuild the temple, um, but thirteen is actually his message for for all this I kind of button hooked you on that but it's alright um, his his message really is verse thirteen I am with you decrees the Lord. And that's, that's got to be a, a great encouragement to hear that. I mean, it's, it's an encouragement for us to hear, um, but it's got to be encouragement for these people here. Um, they've been frustrated. They've been discouraged. They've, you know, they've returned to this land, and they tried to get things going in the temple, and it seems like the, their, the work of their hands wasn't, wasn't going anywhere, wasn't doing anything. But finally, Haggai, after... What's well, been 16 years? He's like he gets this word from the Lord, this message, and really, um, it's over like four month period that Haggai starts preaching, starts his message here um, from like I said August 29th through December, and just in this short time he has these messages for the people, and so this message here, I'm with you, decrees the Lord. That's a very encouraging message for them to hear, um, and we know it's encouraging because. Scripture tells us it is. Verse 14, it says, So the Lord energized and encouraged Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the high priest, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the whole remnant of the people. They came and worked on the temple of their God, the Lord of heaven's armies. This took place on the 24th day of the sixth month of King Darius's second year. So what a sermon. I mean, I think every preacher would love to have results like that after his sermon. I mean, he, he was... 
Haggai was, was pretty hard in this rebuke. He was pretty hard in them. Uh, first of all, the Lord doesn't call them his people. Then he's saying, is it right for you to go? And do, he's calling them out on their, their wrongdoing and everything. He's like, you do all these things and it's for naught. You're discouraged. You're disobedient. And this is why. Um, and, and now the people hear it and they are energized. They're encouraged. Uh, mostly, I think, because the Lord encourages them. It says it. So the Lord energized and encouraged Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the whole remnant of the people. And now... Um, they're they're coming and they're working on the temple so that's pretty good uh second sermon chapter 2 verse 1 says on the 21st day of the seventh month the lord's message came through the prophet haggai so this date here the 21st day of the seventh month this falls right in the middle of the feast of tabernacles um so it'll be october 17th 520 bc um numbers 29 lines out all the things they're supposed to do each of the days of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Uh, but the the 21st day of the seventh month, that would be the seventh day of the Feast of Tabernacles because the Feast of Tabernacles starts on the 15th. So, um, so this is the seventh day. He's given this message on the seventh day. On the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they have a holy assembly. That's what Numbers 29 says they're supposed to do. They have this holy assembly in the place. And so... Um, incidentally, this the Feast of Tabernacles, um, not this year in 520 B.C., but in a few years before, in 960 B.C., whenever Solomon brings the ark into the temple after he completed building it, that's whenever um, that happened in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles as well. So um, so this when when he's preaching. It's a couple months later, October 17th, and this is his message, verse 2. He says, Ask the following question to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the remnant of the people. Who among you saw the former splendor of this temple? How does it look to you now? Isn't it nothing by comparison? So this is the verse we talked about in the introduction. This is one we think he's like 70 years old. If, if Haggai saw the temple, the former glory of the temple that Solomon built, which would have been extravagant, you know, just very... Um, ornate and beautiful and just like nothing we can picture today even like um you know there's a few older churches in america but then there's you know you go outside of america to you know overseas um some of those churches are just gorgeous you know um even the way they're laid out a lot of the sanctuaries are like in the shape of a cross and things like that like if you look down at the church from heaven it's laid out in a cross there's a lot of vertical um, woodwork and things that that all point vertically and it's all to invoke this sense of worship and looking upward and all these kinds of things and so there's there's reasons for all the different i guess decorations and stuff in the church i don't think decoration is the right word but for lack of my vocabulary that's what we're going to say um, there's a reason for all this and, and but even like as this notre dame before it was before it burned down you know even that didn't even compare to solomon's temple and so he's saying this is haggai saying to them who among you survivors saw the former splendor of the temple how does it look to you now isn't it nothing by comparison um and then verse so you think maybe this is going to be another rebuke of a sermon but it's not this is what he says he says 
Verse 4, Even so, take heart, Zerubbabel, decrees the Lord. Take heart, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And take heart, are you citizens of the land, decrees the Lord. And begin to work, for I am with you. So he tells them again he's with you, decrees the Lord of heaven's armies. Verse 5, Do not fear, because I made a promise to your ancestors when they left Egypt, and my spirit even testifies to you now. Moreover, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has said. In just a little while, I will once again shake the sky and the earth, the sea and the dry ground. I will also shake up all the nations, and they will offer their treasures. Then I will fill this temple with glory. So the Lord of heaven's armies has said, The silver and gold will be mine, decrees the Lord of heaven's armies. The future splendor of this temple will be greater than that of former times. The Lord of, heaven, the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. So he's telling them to take heart. I'm with you. Um, don't fear. I made a promise to your ancestors about this land, about this promised land. So this reference to um, the Exodus. When we left Egypt, I made this promise to you, and the Spirit now testifies to you. And he says, um, sort of this this future um, prophecy. In just a little while, I'm going to shake this the sky and the earth and the ground, the sea. Um, and it's basically all these nations are going to offer up their treasures and they're going to, I'm going to fill this, says the silver and gold will be mine. I'm going to fill this temple with glory. And then verse nine gets into a, um, you know, you know, this reference to the Messiah, you know, we, I think they're, they're looking around, they're looking at this temple that they've began rebuilding last couple months. They're starting to work on it, right? Since August 29th to October 17th. They've been working on it. Uh, not much has happened. Uh, you know, this is this would be very labor-intensive work. They have to. They have plenty of stone, but they have to go to get the wood. And even the stone, there. You know, if, if there's not rubble around that they can use, they have to go and quarry the stone from somewhere. Um, Solomon had a quarry north of Jerusalem that he would quarry stuff, but that's a sermon for another time. But regardless, they they they're having to go and cut the stone still. Um, but then they have to go travel out to get the wood, and if they can't get it close by, it's going to be very expensive. So that's you know more discouragement and everything. But he's telling them, take heart, I'm with you. It's going to be all right. And then um, we get this reference to the coming Messiah. Verse nine says, and in this place I will give verse nine. The rest of verse nine uh, says, in this place I will give you peace, decrees the Lord of Heaven's army. So he says. The beginning of verse 9, the future splendor of this temple will be greater than that of former times. And in this place I will give you peace. So this is a reference to the future Messiah, the coming Messiah. Um, and and what did the coming Messiah bring us? He brought us peace. His name, Emmanuel, means peace on earth, right? Um, no, that's not right. Emmanuel means God with us. But... He was peace on earth. He brought peace when he came. And then verse 10 says, On the 24th day of the ninth month of Darius' the second year, so this is December 18th. So a couple months later from, from October, we're down to December. And he says, Lord's message came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has said. Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and that fold touches bread, a boiled dish, wine, olive oil, or any other meat, Will that uh, item become holy? The priest answered, it will not. Then Haggai asked, 
If a person who is ritually, ritually unclean because of touching a dead body comes in contact with one of these items, will it become unclean? The priest answered, it will be unclean. So basically when something dirty touches something clean, it doesn't make the clean thing, it doesn't make the dirty thing clean. It makes the clean thing dirty. We all understand that. We've all, you know, had nice clean hands and we touched raw chicken. Well, we can't go and touch a paper towel and now the paper towel is, now our hands are, well, it would make the paper towel dirty. You, know, you might can wipe it off, but you have to go use soap. Or, you know, you have a clean shirt and you go and put mud on it. It doesn't make the mud clean. It makes your shirt dirty. You know, that's, that's how this works. And we all understand that. That's very makes sense very logical there is um the dirty thing defiles the clean thing um now there is one story of a a sick woman that you know she thought if she could just touch the the edge of the garment of the holy one that she would be clean um, but what did jesus say to her he says your faith has made you well so it was her faith placed in the holy one not the holy one's garments per se um, it wasn't the physical touch of his garment, but it was her faith believing that if she could just touch, the, even if she just brushed up against him, she could be clean. And so it was her faith that made her well. And verse 14 kind of explains further. He says, Then Haggai responded, The people of this nation are unclean in my sight, decrees the Lord, and so is their effort. Everything they offer is also unclean. So, Seems like, man, we can't win for losing here. Haggai, what's going on? But the point is they're rebuilding this temple. They're trying to do a holy thing, but they are unclean. And they're not moving these stones, doing this good thing, and making the stones holy. Um, but are, they're not, the, the stones aren't making them holy all of a sudden because they're doing this good work. But what's happening is they're causing the temple to be unclean because they are unclean. They're not worshiping God, and, and he makes it an issue about their hearts. He says, verse 15, Now therefore reflect carefully on the recent past, before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. From that time when one came expecting a heap of twenty measures, there were only ten. One came to, to the wine vat to draw out fifty measures from it, there were only twenty. I struck all the products of your labor with blight, disease, and hell, and yet you brought nothing to me, says the Lord. So they haven't been worshiping God. They haven't been offering up to God. He says, think carefully about the past. From today, the 24th day of the ninth month, to the day work on the temple of the Lord was resumed, think about it. The seed is still in the storehouse, isn't it? The vine, fig tree, pomegranate, and olive oil have not produced. Nevertheless, from today on, I will bless you. So even though they, they haven't offered up to God, even though they, their hearts aren't there, he's saying, nevertheless, from today on, I will bless you. I'm going to start blessing you. These things, whenever you were doing these things, and I, um, says, verse 17, I struck all the products of your labor with blight, disease, hell, yet you brought nothing to me. He's like, I'm going to bless you now. Um, because he's trying to get them their hearts to change. He's trying to he, he wants their hearts. He doesn't care about their labor as much. He wants their hearts. Um, and God wants our hearts. God, um, like I said, we can do anything we want, you know, work on behalf of God, 
but if God's not in it, it it's not. It's for not. It's for nothing, um, and we'll, and we'll be frustrated for that. Um, if our if our heart isn't isn't right, isn't rightly placed in the effort we're doing, then it's not going to be for anything. Um, I don't. I might have shared this story before, but um, whenever at, at my last church we were a we were a mobile church. We had to set up and tear down in a hotel every week, and I was the person that had to get there first and start doing all that stuff. And um, we we had a little bit of storage area in the hotel, um, kind of underneath some shelves and everything in this corner, and that we'd pull our stuff out from. And so I get there and start doing that. Sometimes I would get there and um, the way the hotel set up, the chairs would be too way too close together, like you couldn't even walk through there, or they hadn't vacuumed. Sometimes uh, there would be just stacks and stacks of chairs in front of where we had our stuff stored, and it was just like sometimes it's like I would get there and think, man, this hotel obviously doesn't care about this as much as we do, but they know we're a group. We're coming every week. They should know to like do this right, but they just didn't. Um, but dealing with those things, you know, I would be, you know, walking around, moving chairs. I'd go get a vacuum. I'd have to move the stacks of chairs to get to our stuff that we needed to pull out. Um, and I would just be grumbling and complaining about it. And, you know, about an hour in, it would always hit me like, this is not the attitude I need to have as I'm up here trying to serve the Lord. You know, this is not the attitude I need to have. Um, but I think... You know, sometimes it's very easy for us to be discouraged and um, and overwhelmed. Sometimes, you know, this would rebuilding this temple would have to be a enormous task. That's why they gave up on it. Um, you know, there a little bit of frustration and and opposition from people around, and then they just gave up on trying to rebuild it because it was such an overwhelming task. Even though there's forty two thousand of them, that's that's not a very big city if you think about it for to do something this with this much work in this time period especially where you don't you know Solomon when he built the temple would have had great number more people and the funds and all this stuff to, to do what he did and they're trying to it's like they're trying to you know what's the old saying where they're trying to slay the elephant with a toothpick you know that's that's what it looked, seemed like in their mind but he's saying nevertheless from today on I will bless you be encouraged I'm with you. I'm blessing you. Um, I remember one time, this was probably 2011, maybe 2012, um, we took the youth group. Um, this was when I was working with the youth at First Baptist Van. We took the youth group to a mission camp up in Chicago. And the church had previously been to Chicago on a couple of different trips before. Um, I wasn't able to go on those. But on one of those trips, they met a pastor of this church, um, I forget the name of Grace, Hope, and Peace Church or something like that. But um, they'd met this pastor. So as they were looking for a mission project for a group the size of ours, we had over 100 people to go with us. Um, the the camp couldn't find a mission project for all of us to work on together. So um, we ended up calling that guy from that church. And he's like, I got the perfect project. Come, come help us out. And so they had one church building. This was probably five or six years before that the, that when the church first met this guy. Well, then he, now they had this other property and it was an old, um, the building that was on the property was an old factory that I think most recently it had been like a paint shop, paint manufacturing. And so it was multi-floors and it needed a lot of renovation, but 
at the time they were meeting in a tent. So, you know, it makes sense for like a church maybe in Southern California. They can meet outside. They can do those things. Here in Texas, it's either too hot or too cold or rainy or something. Um, or the weather is just unpredictable. Um, so, the, but up there in Chicago, I mean, I can't even imagine because it's, it's, it was pretty hot that summer. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to sit outside for a church service. Um, but in the summer, in the wintertime, it's, you know, freezing cold. There's snow everywhere. But they had been in this tent for quite a while having services and things. Um, but in between where they had that tent set up and around the tent, it needed mowing, which we were able to do with like regular lawn mowers. Um, but in between there and the building, it was grass taller than me and weeds. And I mean, some of the stuff was, um, you know, I don't know, like a, a, the size of a pool cue. Imagine like a stalk of grass or whatever this root was, you know, bigger than a pool stick. And we're out there with weed eaters trying to trying to blow it over, and it's not even touching. It's just we're just breaking string. We had some of those, a couple of those little weed eater things on wheels that spin around. But uh, we worked with those youth for um, we were out there for four days. For three days, we just chopped away at it, just a little bit by a little bit. There was trees and stuff in other areas we were having to cut down, and kids were hauling trees. We had, we were able to make a little. I think they had a little path through there. But we were trying to get the rest of the grass down for these for this church up there, um, and they're hauling trees over to a burn pile. Um, another group was in the in the building cleaning out trash and stuff. They had a dumpster that we ended up filling up, one of those long um, dumpster trailer things. I don't know what you call it. Um, and then another group, there was a wooded area where there a lot of homeless people would go hang out in or had previously, they had this whole area fenced off at this point. But a lot of homeless people would hang out in that area, so we had another group that were putting on like two pairs of gloves and going out there and picking up used needles and things and being very careful. You know, we had small groups with adults watching them and making sure they're not accidentally getting stuck or anything, And but that's what they were out there doing. So it was quite an ordeal, and for, for four days being out there, I never once heard one kid complain about any of it. It was a huge, overwhelming task, and if you know anything about teenagers, they're they're not shy about complaining about anything. But um, I was encouraged just by seeing them work and them serve the way they did. Um, and then finally, on the fourth day, um, right on the corner of the property, outside of the fence, there was another business that wasn't part of that church, but it was a a, a business that did road construction. And so one of the guys. One of the adults in our group um, had a, a road construction crew here, and he went and talked to him. I guess he just got free that fourth day to go and chit-chat with the guy. I don't know how it came up, but the guy ended up letting, letting him use a bulldozer. And the, guy, the, the man from our church went and started clearing that grass that we had made like a, you know, it was like a drop in a bucket for what we were able to do over three days. He went and just leveled the whole area over about an hour you know we're like oh, why don't you just do this from the start you know that's what i'm thinking but the kids were like oh this is awesome you know it makes it look like we did a lot of work and we we did they did do a lot of work but not compared to a big machine and everything and so i always thought that's that's how when, when we have the lord's on the when we have the lord on our side that's how our work tends to be you know we can do um put all the effort in we want 
but once the Lord comes through and sweeps over the work that we've done, it makes it look like we've really done a lot because the Lord is able to do so much more than, than us. On the same day, verse 20 here, says, uh, The Lord spoke to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the, of the month. This is the same day, December, 20, December 18th, sorry. Um, this is what he says, Tell Zerubbabel, and, uh, Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I'm ready to shake the sky and the earth. I will overthrow royal thrones and shatter the might of earthly kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and those who ride, with, ride them, and horses and their riders will fall as people kill one another. So again, this is Exodus language. Um, makes us think of the Exodus overthrowing chariots and everything. But he's going to overthrow all these things. And verse 23 says, On that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. My servant is uh, Old Testament language for the Messiah. And he says, um, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, says the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So a signet ring, um, I'm sure you're probably familiar, but back in that day, the kings would wear a signet ring. And it would have like a little, their little symbol, their little emblem on it. And that's how they would seal documents. They would dip it in wax, or they would melt wax on the on the fold of the letter or the envelope, and they would dip the ring in it, so it would have their seal on it. And they would know that is that is my seal. This is from the king. And so, if that got broken, they would think, "Oh, this has been tampered with." Um, if the wax got broken or whatnot, um, and so the Lord saying, "I'm going to make you a signet ring." Basically, I'm, I'm making you my seal. This is you're my representative of my signet of of my seal. I'm putting it on you, for I've chosen you. And so he says, um, basically, he's he's putting Zerubbabel up as a type for Christ, as a as a Messiah to come. Um, so think about Haggai is all about building the temple. We know that. Haggai, they're, they're building the temple. That is, that's his message to them. Um, it took them four years to build this temple. He, he's writing this in 520 B.C., stirring the people up. And a few little bit of work had already begun. They had the altar done. They might have had to you know, reset up a table or something over the last 16 years from when they first did the altar and started working on the foundation before they got frustrated. But from 520 to 516, um, four years it took them to rebuild this temple. Which, you know, really in that day, it was a lot of, they didn't have the guy from the church on the excavator or whatever it was on the bulldozer blowing down stuff. But they did have the Lord helping them out. So this took four years. Um, and, you know, in Jesus' day, there's, he talks about a temple that's going to be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. And that's a pretty incredible thing um, to think about. This is Zerubbabel. He's this, he's this type for Christ. He's this, he's the Lord's servant. He says he's my, my basically the Messiah is going to come and this is what the Lord is going to do. And the Lord did that through Jesus. He came and he overthrew thrones. He shattered earthly kingdoms. Um, and this, this is a, this is a message of hope for the people that this is, this is going to come. The glory of this temple isn't maybe what it was in Solomon's day, but guess what? There's a temple coming. I'm going to establish this temple, and it's going to be way more grand, way more glorious than, than Solomon's temple ever thought about being. 
And when that temple got rebuilt after those three days, we have a much greater temple now to worship. And so, and we talked about... Um, God wanting their work and God wanting them to be um, have the right attitude and the right heart as they as they work toward this. But um, and we talked about how the temple is um, the the seventy years from the temple being destroyed to the temple being re rebuilt, right? Those seventy years because that's the that's the point of what God wants. And that's the point of what God wants from us as well. It's it's not about um, it's not about when they left or when they returned or anything else like that. It's it's the temple. It's God's temple, and that's what He wants is a place for them to worship Him. And now we don't have um, we don't have this physical temple that we have to go to to worship. There's not a there's not a priest that has to go and make intercession for us. We have a high priest in Jesus that that go that we go directly to. Um, and he makes intercession on our behalf for 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 um, to God on our behalf, and he understands our ways as, as Hebrew talks about. He understands the hurts and the troubles and the struggles that we deal with. Um, but but that's who we have to worship now. We have this this three day temple in Jesus that he rebuilt this temple in three days in his resurrection, and that's uh, that's who we have. And this. Um, I really can think of no no better message uh, pre Thanksgiving than than really Haggai because it's such really it's such an encouraging book. The Lord is with us. The Lord is going to bless us. We keep our hearts focused on on God and what He's doing, and be part of what He's doing, and. Uh, and be thankful for all that he does for us in that too. So um, we'll be encouraged and um, hope you guys have a good week this week. Um, I pray that, um, you know, in the, in the hustle and bustle of you know, this week, of this holiday, this week, I pray that we are able to, um, you know, think about really what we're thankful for. I don't want to be the, the weird aunt at Thanksgiving meal that asks us to go around and say what we're thankful for. You know, um, I don't know, maybe you're that person that you're in your family. I don't know. Um, it always seems awkward in our, in our family when we have to do that. But, um, but I would encourage you to, we have so much to be thankful for. Um, not just in this church or this, um, country, um, but in this world, we have tons to be thankful for because um, we have the Lord. And the Lord will, the Lord is for us. He is on our side and he will bless us. So. Well, let's uh, pray and we'll close this out. Lord, we thank you for this message. I thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement that Haggai was able to give to the people. I thank you for the encouragement that brings us today. And I pray that. Um, above all, Lord, we will remember you. We will set our hearts to you and consider you above all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.